Amen. Let us go before the Lord in prayer and pray to our Father in heaven. Father, we thank you that it is a joy that we can call you Father. You have ruled over this earth, but you don't tell us to pray to your majesty. Lord, you are high lifted up, but you do not tell us to address you as your highness. You are judge over the living and the dead, but you do not tell us to say your honor. Instead, you invite us to call you our father. And Lord, so we don't speak to you today as subjects before a king or citizens before an emperor or even plaintiffs before a judge. Lord, we speak to you as children before a father. We speak as children who are confident that our father loves us, confident that our father hears us, confident that our father is eager to act for our good. Lord, we have already confessed that we are like sheep that are gone astray. We have already confessed, Father, that we have sinned against you in our thoughts and words and our deeds. Lord, we're like children who have rebelled against a kind and benevolent father, a father who has only ever loved us, a father who has only ever acted in ways that benefited us. We have chosen to defy you, to revolt against your authority, to go so far as to wish you were dead. Lord, we confess. Lord, we're sorry for this. And we're so thankful that you continue to love us, that you continue to care about us, that you continue to provide for us despite our sinful rebellion. Lord, you patiently and willingly drew us to yourself. Lord, you're such a great God and you're such a great father. And Lord, we confess to you, Lord, that we haven't always treated you as a good father. But Lord, we still thank you for the many precious gifts that you've given us. We thank you for the gift of this church. We thank you, Lord, for the gift of those who you've sent here to us to, to be part of this body, to be part of this fellowship. Lord, we thank you that since we're all your children by grace through faith in Christ, and that you are father to us all. You've drawn us together into this community, the living church, this church family. And Lord, we pray as we worship you this morning that you continue to bless this church, that you bless us with elders and more deacons, that you bless us, Lord, with more uh, faithful members, more members who will help serve the body of Christ in this coming year. Lord, we pray that you would raise up members of this church who will be called, who will be qualified to serve in different areas. We pray, Lord, that you would send more souls to this church to be saved and be baptized and become a member of this family. Lord, we pray this morning also for our nation, for our world, for our city, that you be with all saints everywhere all true saints in this city, all true saints in this country, all true saints around the world, that you be with believers everywhere this morning, Father. Lord, we thank you 
as we think of our brothers and sisters at our sister churches and companion churches and uh, churches that are preaching the true gospel. We thank you, Lord, for brothers uh, Bob at Anderson Bible Church and Carlton at Grace Fellowship and Phil at Redeemer and Anthony at Christian Fellowship and uh, Brother Steve at Hope Presbyterian and Brother Curly at First Baptist Lionville, Brother Cody at uh, Iron City Baptist, Brother Justin Holland at Mountain View Church, uh, Brother Josh at Southside Baptist in uh, Talladega, Brother James down at New Harvest and uh, Brother Mark uh, Young also, Lord, we thank you for all these men, all these churches. I pray that you bless them as they meet to worship you today, as you bless us. Lord, bless all the pastors of those churches that have served faithfully for many years and that you would grant them all many more. I pray, Lord, that you bless the members of their churches just as you do of ours to serve as faithful and committed part of your family right where they are. And now, Father, as we turn to the word to hear it read and preached, Lord, we ask that you would help us to listen attentively and apply diligently. We pray, Lord, that we will listen as children who so badly need the wisdom of their father, as children who are committed to imitating their heavenly father, as children who long to please their father. Lord, I pray that you would speak and that we would listen, that you who are perfect and unchanging would do a great work within us who are imperfect and in desperate need of change. Lord, please let us leave here today as children who have heard from their Heavenly Father, who have grown in love and trust to their Father, and who are eager to be like their Father. Lord, we pray all of this in the name of our precious Savior, our elder brother, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. All right. Let's turn to the book of Colossians. We got some slides for you with some principles and other things we're going to cover today. My prayer, as we begin this new series, we're going to spend the next few months in this book. We're going to look at the book of Colossians. We looked at Ephesians. We finished Ephesians before we did our Advent series back in November. And we're going to... Uh, we, we skipped over Philippians. We're going to come back to Philippians after we do the book of Colossians. And I'll explain why that is. This is our new series in this book. And I am excited to get into it. So when people ask you, what is your preacher preaching on? You say he's preaching through the book of Colossians. It won't be a mystery. You won't have to guess. <clears throat> and I was thinking and meditating on this. This week as I was talking to someone who goes to another church and they appreciate the fact that uh, I do expository preaching here. I pray that you all appreciate the fact that <coughs> we do expository preaching, that we preach through books of the Bible and we get to see the narrative of scripture unfold. And that I don't get up and tell a bunch of stories and never really get to the 
gospel. That's something that, you know, my wife and I was listening to a uh, church on the way up here uh, that's on the way to Heflin. Now, we listened to the preacher uh, on 91.3, I think. And um, one thing I told my wife, I said, I said, this man tells a lot of stories. He tells a lot of uh, illustrations, but he doesn't really preach uh, the text of the gospel. So my prayer is that this morning and throughout the time that we've been here at our church, that you have been blessed by the sermons that we preach here at the Living Church. Amen. So this morning we're in the book of Colossians and our text is verses one and two of Colossians one. And the sermon topic is Paul's greetings or greeting to the Colossian Christians. And we welcome our visitors here today. It's good to see you all. I pray that the word of the Lord blesses you also because it is for you too. So this is Colossians 1 verses 1 through 2. And this is the word of the Lord. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Timothy our brother to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae grace to you and peace from God our father we just got finished praying about that and the Lord Jesus Christ may the Lord bless his word this morning those are just two verses, but they're very powerful. They're, they're packed with lots of theological significance. I want to ask this question as we begin. This is the year 2023. Going to 2024 next year. When was the last time you wrote a letter to someone? I can't even remember. When last time I sit, sat down, pen, put pen to paper, and wrote a letter to someone and sent it off in the mail. In English, we usually begin a letter with uh, greeting the person by saying, uh, Dear Bill or Dear Jane. And then we wait to the end of the letter to say, uh, With regards or sincerely or love. And then we sign our name. Now, the ancient writers didn't follow uh, that style. You don't have to turn to the last page to find out who wrote the letter. This is because the letters from the first century arrived, rolled up and bound by a string. That's how letters were written in the first century. They're written on parchment paper. They didn't have uh, lines in them. They didn't have holes punched in the side where you can put them in a binder. They just came on one long page that was rolled up and bound with a string around it. They were written on one continuous sheet of writing material. And the author of the letter always put their name first and immediately following it with the recipient. So when you see this letter right here, you see Paul. Because Paul is the one who is writing the letter. And then following his name is the recipients. He says, who are the recipients? The saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae. So ancient letter writing was sort of like our modern day emails. It began by naming the sender, the recipient, and the subject. When you look at an email, the sender 
name is always at the top. Like one of my email addresses is uh, tlcanderson at gmail.com, which is deliverchurchanderson at gmail.com. And then next it has the two line. And whoever is two, and you put that person's email address in there. And then the next line is the subject. What's the subject of your email? And then the bottom part is the body. And then I have a little automatic signature that's at the end of all my emails. So this is kind of the style that this letter is written right here. But in ancient times, it began with naming the sender, then the recipient, and then the subject. And the letter was the sender. And then it was always followed by a prayer. So most of Paul's letters began with that, where he identified himself. If you look at all of Paul's letters to the Corinthians, to Timothy, to the Thessalonians, to the Romans, to the Galatians, to the uh, Colossians church, all his letters, you'll see he began with his standard greeting, addressing himself. He stated his name first, then the name of the person to whom it was addressed, and then followed with his greetings. So this is kind of the context of, of, of this letter that is written. Now, just for a little background, the author, of course, of this letter is Paul. The background is uh, Colossae was a city, of course, in uh, the Roman province of Asia, Asia Minor, which is where the modern day uh, Turkey is. And Colossae was a thriving city during this time. Now, the church of Colossae began with Paul's three year ministry at Ephesus as you find in, in Acts, the 19th uh, chapter. And Paul was the founder of this church. But Epaphras, who we're going to read next week in verses uh, 5 through 7, he was likely the founder of that church and one of Paul's ministry helps. Another thing about this book is that it was written from prison. Paul wrote this letter while he was in prison in Rome, which you'll find in Acts 28 uh, verses 16 through 31 and it was written sometime between 60 and 62 AD that means in the first century it was referred to as a prison epistle a prison letter remember he wrote Ephesians from prison he also wrote Philippians from prison and he also wrote the book to Philemon from prison for so Paul didn't spend his time in prison moping he spent his time in prison encouraging the churches isn't that something that's a great testimony now the biggest theme of this book is the supremacy of Christ Ephesians we talked about the theme of that book was our identity in Christ who we are in Christ the theme of this book is the supremacy of Christ that Christ is supreme above all other things and all other people and so the big idea of this sermon this morning is that all that we are and all that we have as Christians can be found in God through Christ. That's our big idea this morning and the big idea of this book overall. So we have a few principles here that we're going to look at this morning. I think we have four of them. The first principle is that the source of who we are as believers 
can be found in God through Christ. Look at the very first part of this letter. It says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Paul was called by a special command of the Lord himself. We find this in Acts 9 and 15 where Paul was on the road to Damascus. And the Lord had appeared to him and had knocked him down because he saw the glory of the risen Christ. So Paul's calling was very special. And God had given him sovereign authority to preach the gospel. And also to establish his church. And this is the highest charge that God ever gave to men. So the Lord had appeared to Paul in Acts 9 and 15. He says, go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him many things he must suffer for my name's sake. Now, the Lord had told this to Ananias, the high priest. He said, don't touch Paul because I have a special calling for him to take the gospel to the Gentiles, to the pagans, to the unbelievers. So Paul had this special apostolic ministry. Now, this role as an apostle was not something that he sought after. It wasn't earned or wasn't given to him by a, a church or a denomination. Just like I talk about today, all these people who are walking around calling themselves apostles are not true apostles. They are false. They are imposters. They have been specially called by God. They are self-appointed apostles. They're not true apostles of Christ. They have not seen the risen Christ. They have not written books of the Bible that we preach from. Paul didn't seek to be an apostle. He came by, what does he say? By the will of God. It was God who called Paul. It was an act of God. And these credentials were essential for Paul's ministry to the churches. And these are also important for us today when many men are teaching man-made religions instead of God's revelation to man. These people who call themselves apostles are not preaching God's revelation to man, which is the Bible. They are preaching man-made, made-up stuff so that they can maintain power, so they can accumulate power, so they can put themselves over people. But we're going to see that that's not what a true apostle does. So he says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. And then he says, and Timothy, our brother. Remember, we're talking about the source of who we are as believers can be found in God through Christ. So he says, and Timothy, our brother. Notice this. Paul doesn't separate himself from the brethren as an apostle. As to suggest that he is on a higher plane or a higher level like these man-made apostles do. They place themselves up on a pedestal they desire the highest seats they desire to be worshiped by man and if you don't address them as apostle they get offended but paul says and timothy 
our brother. He doesn't place himself on a higher plane or a higher level than Timothy, his spiritual son in the faith. Timothy is a Christian brother who was associated with the Apostle Paul in his ministry. Paul also included Timothy in his greeting in 2 Corinthians, in Philippians, in 1 and 2 Thessalonians, and in Philemon. That means that he and Timothy, Timothy is basically his right-hand man. They were partners in ministry. Paul wasn't up here and Timothy down there. So he addressed him as his brother. He mentions Timothy in writing in Romans, in 1 Corinthians and his letters to Timothy, as we've been reading through our call to worship. He rejoices that Timothy is with him. When we say our Christian brother or sister, or if I say brother Darrell is my brother in Christ, or sister Dolores is my sister in Christ, we're indicating that we are members of the body of Christ. We have a different family relationship than other families. That brother or that sister is our brother and sister in Christ. Now, brother is a term that is common in the New Testament writings for a Christian or a believer in Christ. It's a gendered term, but it is a term that applies to all believers. All of us who are in Christ are brothers and sisters in Christ. We talk about this all the time. We're brothers and sisters with Christians around the whole world. You know, I pray for Brother Josephus and Gobleje over in Liberia. They are brothers and sisters in Christ. And Brother Sylvester over in Zimbabwe, who actually sent me an email this morning, asked me to pray for his church going into 2024. He's our brother in Christ, although we never met him and probably never will meet him. That is what unites all Christians together. That we are in Christ together. It is Christ who binds us all together. I remember a song we sing in my old church. Blessed be the tie that binds our hearts in Christian love. It's a tie that binds us. And that tie is Christ. And that tie comes from above. So when Paul is speaking of Timothy, he says, our brother. He doesn't just say my brother. He says our brother because he belongs to the church. And then he says to the saints. To the saints. What is a saint? You know, we've talked about this before at our church. That being a saint has nothing to do with who you are or what you have or have not done. Paul gives a great definition. 1 Corinthians 1 and 2. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 2. Paul says to the church of God who is at Corinth. Those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus. Called to be saints. With all who in every place call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So who are saints? Those who are sanctified. Who are those who are sanctified? Sanctified means to be set apart. Peculiar. Different. Special. 
So us being called saints has nothing to do with the fact that we're perfect because we are not. We are set apart for God. We have been sanctified. We have been put aside for God. Paul, I mean, Peter says this as much in first Peter where he says you are a chosen generation. A holy nation, a people of his own possession. That's what makes us saints because it is God who makes us saints. We don't make ourselves saints. It is our relationship with God through Christ that makes us saints. That's why he says to the saints and faithful in Christ. So to the saints in Christ. The scriptures know nothing of those who are especially saints that place themselves above others. This is what J.P. Lang said, this quote right here, the theologian. He says, the scriptures know nothing of those who were especially saints, preeminent above others, but all who through Christ are brought back into living fellowship with God are saints. In other words, all believers are saints. Now, we don't walk around with the halo over our heads. We don't walk around with some type of aura around us where people behold our glory. You know, I see some of these so-called apostles and whatnot around here, and I, I tell a friend all the time, they, uh, when I see them in the grocery store, they look just as ordinary as I do. They don't have no aura around them and everybody has to kind of move out the way when they come down the aisle. You know what? They got to buy groceries just like I do. Okay. They got to go out in the cold and brave the, brave the traffic just like us. They don't, they don't have a special lane in, 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 in traffic. They look just as ordinary as we do. They don't have their glow up, as they say, when they're in public. Being a saint doesn't mean that you're better, a better class of Christian no all believers are saints you are a saint it's not about how you well pastor I don't feel like a saint who cares about how you feel it is who you are in Christ it is who God has made you to be God has set you apart for his use for his glory for his purposes you are a saint you are a called out one Every person who has been born again is a saint of God in Christ Jesus. It is a common description of all church members. If you know Christ as your Savior and your Lord, you are a saint. If you worship the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are a saint. This is our position before God. Saints are the people of God who are dedicated to him and reserved for his purpose. So you may not feel like a saint this morning, Christian, but, but guess what? You are one. You are a saint. The main idea in this word hagios, which is the Greek word for saint, is not excellence of character, but separation to God. They are reserved for his use. And their lives should reflect that in every area. Now, because we are saints, 
we have to carry ourselves as that. We have to carry ourselves as if we are separated unto God. That we're not like the world. That as 1 John says, we don't love the world nor the things that are in the world. We don't act as the world does. We don't think as the world does. We don't emote as the world does. No, we act differently from the world. We're not ashamed to be named a saint. As Paul uh, uh, talked about as we read this morning, our call to worship is telling Timothy, do not be ashamed of the testimony of Christ. We're not to be ashamed to be saints. We are to live unashamedly for Christ. And the life of a saint should be reflected in every area of our life. Things, places, seasons, and people are described in the Bible as holy, meaning that they are set apart for God, just as the sacrifices were sanctified because they were set apart for God. We are a consecrated people. We are set apart for God especially. And if you're a Christian man, that is the greatest privilege that we are set apart for God. That is such a great privilege. You may not be part of the cool kids club at your job or at your school to be named among Christ, but who cares? Your friends may not want to have anything to do with you because you go to that church where they actually preach the gospel. So what? You are a saint of God. God has called you. You have a special call on your life, and that's all that matters. It doesn't matter what anyone else thinks, people. You can't have fear of man. The Bible says the fear of man is a snare. What do we read this morning? 2 Timothy 1 and 7. God has not given us the spirit of fear, but a power. That power comes from the Holy Spirit. A power, love, and of a sound, a right mind. That's the spirit that God has given us. We are saints of God. He's given us that power. And being a saint leads to practical holiness. Just as we are in Christ, we also have an intimate association with the Holy Spirit. And again, Paul is not referring to a special class of Christian who have achieved a certain level of holiness. I came out of a church, a, a denomination like that where they, they, they treat some people as if they, they were more holy than others. Like they were some type, they, they, they were more special than everybody else. Oh, we used to call them the super saints. We'd say that, we'd say that sarcastically. People who thought they were super saints, they were put on a pedestal. But that's not the case in Christ. Guess what? All of us are saints. There's not a certain level of holiness that some have. Believers are saints not because of their conduct, but because of their relationship to Christ. And not only is it right to the saints, but also it says here, and the faithful brethren in Christ. Now, brethren, I, I love brethren. It's, it's, I just like that word. That's the um, 17th century word. But I love the word brethren. Brethren is a term of affection, is a term of intimacy, and it's a term of love within the body of Christ. So when Paul was saying faithful brethren, he wasn't just talking to men, he was talking to the saints as a whole, the faithful brethren in Christ. So being faithful brethren 
is the byproduct of being called as a saint in Christ. Now, you have to understand this about Paul in his letter. Paul never met the Colossian Christians. Remember, he wrote this letter from jail, from prison. He never met them personally. He wrote this letter from a Roman prison. He never met these people. But yet he referred to them as what? Brethren. Just like I said, it don't matter where you are. When you meet a fellow believer, guess what? That's your brother. That's your sister in Christ. You all are brethren together. It don't matter whether you see them or whether you talk to them on the phone. Or whether you communicate with them through FaceTime or whatever. It doesn't matter. You all are still brethren. You don't have to be in the same place with them to be among the saints of God. That is the privilege of being in Christ. That the Christian community is the only true community where you have shared values, which are in the word of God, where you share a common salvation, and that is salvation in and through the person and work of Jesus Christ, where you, where you serve the same God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Christian community is the only true community. Because we have something that binds us that no other group has, and that is Jesus Christ. I can't walk to a random person on the street and say, hey, brother. And they weren't born of Frederica and Ronald Haygood. They're not my siblings. They're looking at me like I'm crazy. I don't know you. Who are you? You're my brother, man. We don't have the same mom, same dad. I know, man, but you're my, you know, they look at you like, like I'm going horns out my head or something. Because <laughs> we have nothing in common other than the fact that we are image bearers of God. But that doesn't make us brothers and sisters. But when you're in Christ, you can see any Christian and say, hey, brother, hey, sister in Christ. They may not understand it because their pastor don't teach that. But this is what the Bible teaches us. We are all faithful brethren in Christ, no matter what. Paul never met these people, but he still referred to them as brethren. And this is a kindred spirit that comes only in Christ. No matter when or where we meet Christians, we have a common parentage. We have a common father. It is God the Father. We have a common brotherhood, and that is Jesus Christ. Christ is our elder brother. No one else has that but Christians. It is our relationship, as Paul says, in Christ, the faithful brethren in Christ. He didn't just say the faithful brethren. He said the faithful brethren in Christ. That is what makes our relationship solid. So to conclude that principle, Christ mediates and maintains our relationship toward God and toward one another. It is Christ who mediates that relationship between us and God. He is the sum, he is the center, and he is the substance of our union with God and with one another. It is Christ who binds us together. Christ mediates that. He, he's our go-between. He's our advocate. He's our attorney. He is the one who is the glue to make all that bind together. Christ is that glue.
that keeps it all together. That's why the theme of this book is the supremacy of Christ. It is Christ who does that. It is Christ who binds us together. So our next principle here is the source of what we have as believers comes through the work of God through Christ. So the work of God. And that is found in the next verse. So the source of who we are as believers in Christ can be found in God through Christ. And now we see the source of what we have as believers comes from the work of God through Christ. So look what he says in the last part of verse 2. Grace to you and peace. That preposition, what's that next preposition? From. From means who it emanates from, who originates Who is the origin? Who is the founder? Who is the, who is the foundation on which this grace has been settled? He says, grace to you and peace from who? God, our Father. That was the subject of our pastoral prayer this morning. And the Lord Jesus Christ. I will say this about the fatherhood of God. I have to every time this, this comes up it has to be said not everyone is God's child the universal fatherhood of God is a heresy the universal fatherhood of God says that everybody is a child of God but that's not what the scriptures teach that's not what the Bible teaches only those who are in Christ can rightly call God father those who are in Christ by what? Faith, by salvation. John says that in the first chapter of John. Who has the right to call Christ's children of God? Those whom he has saved. And John 1 says that, and I'll read it to you, that passage. I always, when we get to this uh, principle about the fatherhood of God, we always have to go to what the scriptures say. And this is what John 1 says about God. I'll go back to verse uh, 9, just John 1 and 9. That was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was talking about Christ. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him to them, he gave the right to become children of God. To those who believed in his name. Who were born not of blood. So just because a person is born doesn't mean they're a child of God. That's what it means by not of blood. Not because of birth, because that's what the Jews thought. That's why he said in that previous verse, previous verse, he came to his own, his own didn't receive him because he is not the Messiah they were looking for, although he was the Messiah. Get it? So not just because a person is born, that, that means that they are a child of God. John says here, 
who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh. But of God. It is God who calls us to be his children. We don't call on God to be his children. God calls on us to be his children. It is God who makes us his child. We don't just impose ourselves. Just like a person can't come into your family and just impose themselves on you and say, I'm your child. Take care of me. <laughs> I'm your child. Take care of my family. A woman can't just walk up to me and say, I'm your long lost wife. He can't just impose himself like that. A person can't just impose themselves into your family. No one can just impose themselves into the family of God. It is God who does that. It is God who calls them. And John tells us that. So when Paul is saying grace and peace to you from God, our father, he's speaking about God as who is the hour, the saints. Remember, we talked about context. When you read these letters, who is he addressing? The saints. Who are the saints? Those who are in Christ. Those who are saved by grace through faith. Those are who are part of the family of God. Not by the will of man. As Paul says, not by the will of man, but of God. So he said our, he's talking about the saints. The faithful brethren in Christ. That's the context of that passage. So what is this grace? Grace is unmerited favor. Towards depraved man. None of us deserve God's grace. If you think you do, you don't understand grace. Grace, by definition, is undeserved. You think about a person who has murdered someone, and they go to court, and the judge asks them, uh, what do you plead? And you say, not guilty. Why are you doing that? Because you're pleading for, on the mercy of the court. You're asking for grace from the judge because you want a lesser sentence. But do you deserve that lesser sentence because you took someone's life? By no means. But if that judge gives you 20 years instead of life without parole, that's an act of grace because you didn't what? Deserve it because you took a life. If human judges can do that, think about the judge of all judges. Grace is God's unmerited favor towards the prayed man. It is totally undeserved. It is grace by which we're saved. Ephesians 2 and 8. We're saved purely by God's grace. We don't earn salvation. We can't do anything to be saved. It is God who saves us. Because if we can save ourselves, then that means we can lose our salvation. I don't want it to be up to me. <laughs> I'm sorry because I can't keep myself because, Lord, I sin. Lord, I'm so weak. Lord, I am so needy. I don't want to be responsible to keep myself saved because I will lose it every day. None of us can. It is God who saves us. And not only does he save us, but he does what? He keeps us. Praise the Lord for that. So, it's by grace we're saved. It comes from God through Christ alone. That is the uh, sola gratia, by grace alone. Grace also enables us to live godly. 
Titus 2 verses 11 through 14 say this because a lot of people talk about the grace of God as if they deserved it somehow. And a lot of people talk as if this grace is not uh, what the theologian calls an effectual grace. That means the grace of God has an effect on us. It's not an effect just to thank God for his grace, which is good, but that is not the only effect that grace has on a believer. What else does the grace of God do? It enables us to live a holy life. Look at what Paul said in Titus 2 verses 11 through 14. Man, I love this. He says, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us. So what does the grace of God do? It teaches us. It is our teacher. It is our guide. And what does Paul say the grace of God teaches us? Denying ungodliness and worldly lust or worldly desires or sinful desires. We should live soberly. Soberly means with a clear mind, a clear conscience, being alert, being aware. Living a righteous life. The grace of God applied to our life leads us to live a righteous life, a life that is holy before God. As I, I was telling my wife last night, God has a standard and he doesn't change his standard for any man. Many people try to change God's righteous standard. They try to compromise or try to excuse their sinful rebellion, acting as if God doesn't have a standard. And God doesn't change. God's standard doesn't change. God has a holy and righteous standard for us, for all of us, without exception. So this grace empowers us to live righteously. So look at these three words that Paul uses in Titus 2. That we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. I was, you know, me and my wife had our 25th anniversary uh, last week, and I was, uh, I think I put on the Facebook post, uh, and I was telling my wife that I thank God. It was only by his grace that I married a godly woman. It's by grace that she's godly because God saved her. I said, I could not marry a woman who wasn't godly because I knew it would cause a lot of headache. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It, it would. Would have. It would cause a lot of headache, a lot of turmoil, a lot of drama, as people say. It's by God's grace because when I was in college, I was doing all the young, dumb, and stupid stuff before I met my wife. Then I realized, you know what? I want a godly woman. That mattered to me. And I think she has a godly man. <laughs> you had to look at her and ask her that. But, um, but that matters, being godly, as a, uh, because, number one, it causes less trouble in your life. It causes less turmoil. It's a blessing to your children. It's a blessing to the church to be godly. Godly doesn't mean perfect. I sin every day in thought, word, and deed. But because I'm in Christ, my sins have been 
forgiven and I still confess my sins and I, I repent. I ask God to Lord help me to put this sin to rest to, to death in my life. I don't, I don't I'm not satisfied with sin in my life. No true believer is. That's part of as as the grace of God applied to our life gives us the desire to live godly. It gives us the desire, as Paul said, to live righteously. It gives us the desire to live soberly in this present age. In this present age. That's what the grace of God applied to our life does. It gives us those holy desires. We want to please God. We want to live holy. We hate our sin. We're not comfortable with our sins. That's what the grace of God does in us. That's the effectual grace that I was talking about earlier. It has an effect on us. And this is the grace that Paul is talking about when he says grace to you, that effectual grace, that special grace that God has applied to his saints. It changes us. The grace of God works on the inside through the Holy Spirit that we deny ungodliness and worldly the things of this world we talked about, the worldly, the worldly ideologies, the, the self-worship, the, the self-glorification. Everybody look at me. Everybody look at what I'm doing. Everyone praise me. Do you all notice it's been like this for a, a long time, last 10, 15, 20 years? We live in a self-saturated society. Everyone wants to be worshipped. Everyone wants the world's gaze upon them. Instead of gazing at our Savior, Jesus Christ, who is perfect and holy and righteous, we want people to gaze upon sinners like us. We believe the, the lie of self-love. I was getting into a back and forth with someone on a post about, uh, you know, they said you can't love others until you love yourself first. I said, show me that in the Bible. It's not in there. The greatest commandment is, is to worship the Lord with all of your heart, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. And the second one is like love your neighbor as yourself. And that doesn't mean you love yourself. That means you love your neighbor as if you are your neighbor. That's what that means. But you can't love, you can't know what it means to love your neighbor if you don't love God, if you don't worship God. You won't know what it means. You, you can't worship yourself. Well, you can. But your gaze is always going to be on who? You. Yourself. Continuously. And you will never worship yourself enough. You can never get enough of yourself. Why? Because that's how sinful we are. I love me some me. <laughs> that's what people say. I love me some me. Like, really? Do you know who you are? You're a sinner. You're dead in your trespasses and sins if you're not in Christ. You need a Savior. If you die right now in your sins, you're going to be eternally lost. You can love you some you all you want to. That's not godliness. That's not the grace of God applied to us. The grace of God tells us to deny ourselves. What does Paul say? Deny ungodliness. And rather live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. Looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing 
of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify the grace of God purifies us, purify for himself, his own special people, zealous for good works. That's the grace that Paul is talking about here. And that's the grace that God works in our life when he saves us. And the grace of God is something that is continuous. It's not something that we just receive upon salvation. It is something that God always does in us at all times. His grace is at work in us. He who begun a good work in you will complete it until the coming of Christ. We're going to see that here in Colossians 1 later on. God begins that work of salvation in us. And guess what? He's going to complete it. Saint, don't be discouraged when, 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 when you endure hardness. God is still at work in your life. We have setbacks. We have discouraging times. You're going to have those. We live in this flesh. We can't escape it. But we know even during those times that God is at work in us. He is working out his redemption. He's making us more and more like his son, Jesus Christ. And that is how his work is in us. Amen. Will Pounds, the great theologian of the 19th century, said his grace not only saves us, but touches every area of our Christian life. This greeting stresses the favor of God and the spiritual blessings that come with it. We rejoice when we realize what God has done on our behalf. Love always has the, the sense of divine favor in action. It is his spontaneous, unmerited, undeserved, sovereign grace freely bestowed on sinful radically depraved sinners that's what the grace does God bestows it upon depraved sinners and not only does he bestow grace Paul says here peace from God our Father Lord Jesus Christ now this is not the absence of conflict or peace of mind kind of peace that the world seeks after or you know, when our boys were younger, it was like, I just need some peace in the house. Y'all go in your rooms. <laughs> Y'all remember that when your children were younger, those of us who have uh, older children. I just need some peace. <clears throat> we want some quiet in the house, right? Why don't y'all go to y'all rooms and find something to do? <laughs> go outside and play or get on your, now they say get on your phones, you know. We were growing up, it was go outside and play because, you know. Yeah, come back home at dark, you know. But that's not the kind of peace that, uh, oh, I just need peace of mind. You know, this is a good gospel opportunity to, you know, you have a lot of people searching for that, that peace of mind. Because most, most of the conflict that people have in their life and the, quote, drama is self-inflicted. Look at the company you keep. Look at your circle. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, evil communication corrupts good people. We must be careful. Who are we letting influence us? People say they want peace of mind, but they're trying to get peace through worldly means. The true peace that the world seeks after, the saints already have. It is a peace 
that is freely given to us who believe in Christ and have been born again as a result. We have peace with God through Christ. That's Romans 5 and 1. People want peace, but they don't want God. They want peace, but they don't want God. They just want the benefits, but they don't want God himself. You know, I often say this and I have to remind us of this. When you try to build a world, while at the same time denying the God who created it, it cannot work because it will not work. You have millions upon billions of people out here trying to build their own world while at the same time denying the God. And I'm denying him by not worshiping him and not submitting to him. That's what I mean by denying God. You try to build your own world while at the same time denying the God who created it. It cannot work because it would not work. Might as well just take your foot and just kick it against the wall. Because that's how effective it's going to be. It's not going to work. You're just going to hurt your own self. You can never have true peace without Christ. It will never. You can't buy it. How do many people, many people try to seek peace? By getting high. That's why they smoke seven, eight times a day weed. Because they're trying to escape. They want to stay high to escape as they think in their minds. They escape from their problems. While at the same time, they're destroying their bodies. Trying to find that peace. People do it through drugs, alcohol, uh, promiscuous sexual activity, uh, going from a relationship to relationship to relationship through abusing their bodies, abusing other people, resorting to uh, criminal activity, they do all these things to try to find peace. But true peace, as Paul writes, comes from God. It only comes from him. This peace is a result of Christ reconciling us to God through himself. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 5 and 18. This is where Paul says, um, I'll go back to verse 16. Verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. What is reconciliation? When peace is made. When you reconcile with someone, that means that you're what? You're now at peace with them. You were at odds with each other. But now you're at peace. So Paul says here that we have reconciliation through Christ. God reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. The true peace we need is peace with God. You cannot, as people say, make your peace with God without coming through Christ. I hear people say, so, oh, I need to make my peace with God. Well, how are you going to do that? You don't do it. Christ did the reconciling work. You come through Christ. You repent and turn from your sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Instantly, 
you're at peace with God. It happens just like that. You have to repent. Turn from your sinful ways. Turn from your sinful rebellion and turn to Christ who is the great reconciler who has made us at peace with God the Father. And then you'll experience that true peace. It is the inner working of God through the Spirit who ensures our standing with Christ. True Christians have an inner peace knowing that we are in God. That God is ours and we are his. The Holy Spirit gives us that peace and knowing that that assurance that we are in Christ. So in conclusion here, Will Pounds said this. If you have never been born spiritually, you are not a member of this family of God. The Apostle John wrote, but as many as received him to them, he gave the right to become children of God. Even those who believe in his name, who were born out of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. As John 1, 12 through 13, which I referenced earlier. You can become a member of the most beloved family in all the universes right now at this very moment. Believe on the Lord and you will become an adopted member of that family. You are born spiritually into it. It does not come by physical birth, but by regeneration. It is an act of God and his grace through the Holy Spirit based on the atoning sacrifice and merits or work of Jesus Christ. That's Will Pounds and that is so true. Come to know Jesus. And you will be in that family of God. You can be called among the saints and the faithful brethren in Christ. You can have this grace and peace that only comes from him. He will withhold it from no one who comes to him. Amen. You go to the last slide here. Applications. Because of Christ's work, we can live set apart lives in this present age. It's not hard when you're in Christ to be different, to live that set apart life. Because of Christ's work, we can live as faithful brethren in this world and with one another. <laughs> what the world needs now is more faithful Christians. More people who are not ashamed of the testimony of Christ. More people who are not ashamed to be named among the saints of God. That's what this world needs. I was talking to a, a fellow State Farm agent uh, this past week, and uh, I didn't mention anything to her. But she, she, uh, she we had a, good, good, a long conversation, but she said that... Uh, I could tell there's something different about you. And I said, it's not me. I said, it's Christ. She said, so you could tell just by talking to me that it was something different. And I said, it's not me. I said, it's Christ. It, it is totally Christ. It's, it's not me. I'm just, I'm just who I am. I said, I'm just a sinner. Saved by grace. That's exactly what I told her. I said, it's nothing special about me. It's really not. I said, I'm, I'm a sinner. I say I am. I say I'm, I'm, I'm a grave sinner, but I have I serve a great Savior. That's exactly what I told her. I say I'm a great sinner, but I have a great Savior, who has 
cleansed me of my sins and who gave me a new heart and a new nature. That's all of our testimony as believers, not just mine, not just because I'm a pastor. That has nothing to do with it. I'm like Paul in 1 Corinthians, uh, I mean 1 Timothy 1 and 15. This is a trustworthy saying and worthy of all acceptation that Jesus Christ came to save sinners of whom I am chief. We as believers, we can live as faithful brethren in this world. We can live with the grace of God upon us and his peace within us. You turn on the news, the world is chaotic. It is. It is gonna get, it's going to get worse as we get closer to November of 2024. The first Tuesday of the month. It's going to get worse. But you know what? As believers, we're like the house that's burning down the world's burning down around us. And we're just standing there with our hands in our pocket. <laughs> well, we're, we're proclaiming to people there is hope. We're proclaiming to people we have the truth. And it's found in Christ. Come to Christ. Be part of his family. And you will experience those blessings too. Amen. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the work of Christ. It is Christ who called Paul. It is Christ who made Timothy our brother. It is Christ who called us to be saints and faithful brethren. It is Christ who gives us his grace and his peace. It is Christ who is supreme above all. It is Christ who alone is worthy of all praise, honor, and glory. Lord, help us all to look to Christ. He alone is worthy. We're not worthy, Lord. We're nothing but a tingling cymbal. We're nothing but sounding brass. Lord, we're nothing but flesh. But Lord, it is you who make us worthy. It is you who give our life, who gives our life value. It is you, Lord, who calls us to be your people. It is you, Father. You are the great God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, to those who are watching, those who are listening and here, who are not in your family, who are not of the true church, I pray, Father, that you would convict them of their sins by your Spirit's power. Give them the faith to believe, Father, that they may repent, turn from their sin, Turn from their rebellion and turn to you and be saved and be instantly transformed into saints and faithful brethren and instantly join your family. Father, bless this word. May it encourage the faithful and may it bring sinners to repentance. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.